It's a joy to be with you on this Lord's Day morning, uh, where we can give thought, as we should every Lord's Day, to the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so uh, it may seem uh, an odd choice, uh, but hopefully my choice will become very evident as we get through the message. But uh, to, uh, to think about and meditate upon the birth of Christ, I want us to turn this morning to the 40th chapter of Ezekiel. So Ezekiel chapter 40, and we're going to read verses 1 through 4. Ezekiel chapter 40, and we'll read verses 1 through 4. So let's turn there uh, to the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 40, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was struck down, on that very day the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain, on which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I shall show you, for you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel." May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful for all of the blessings that you continually give us throughout the entirety of our lives, how you have watched over us moment by moment, day by day, you have provided for us, but most importantly, you have called us by uh, the effectual word of your Holy Spirit. You have granted unto us faith in Christ. And so we pray by the continued reading and preaching of your word that you would enable us to grow in greater conformity to Christ, that you would uh, make us holy, that you would glorify yourself in our lives, that you would feed us as your hungry children who desperately hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we pray, O Lord, that you would make us content. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Every well-built house or structure or bridge typically begins with some sort of blueprint, some sort of plan, some sort of drawing. Blueprints are, of course, those drawings that architects produce in order to guide the building process so that when the contractors and the construction workers arrive on the site, they understand exactly what it is that they're supposed to build, how wide is the foundation, how thick is the foundation, how tall is the structure. Now, the Bible itself, we could say, strictly speaking, does not contain any blueprints. In other words, uh, those drawings that we recognize as those building plans But we can say that it does include a number of instructions for the various buildings and objects that we find throughout the Old Testament and even arguably in the New. We know, for example, that God gave specific instructions for the building of the Ark of the Covenant. He gave very detailed and specific instructions for uh, the building of the Desert Tabernacle. 
He also gave very detailed instructions for the building of the Solomonic Temple. But one of the best-known sets of blueprints we can say that appear in the Old Testament are the series of visions that God gave to the prophet Ezekiel in the closing chapters of his book, which we just read the very opening first four verses there in chapter 40. And I was tempted to, to read on into it, but I thought that we might quickly grow dull uh, as we read of all of the instructions that, that, that the, the temple was supposed to be so many cubits by so many cubits, and the south gate, and the north gate, and the east gate, and the west gate. But what we want to recognize is that, believe it or not, this particular section of the prophecy of Ezekiel, as he gives those detailed plans for the construction of a final temple, ultimately and very poignantly direct us to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that what happens here is that in the narrative structure of Ezekiel's message, it's a message of judgment against Israel and the surrounding nations. And it seemingly screeches to a halt as the prophet transitions here to giving these detailed plans. Why, why does God give Ezekiel this vision of this blueprint, if you will, these plans, uh, these architectural drawings for this perfect temple? And how and in what way are these blueprints connected to the birth of Christ? What I want us to do is I want us to look in detail to Ezekiel's vision to see what it is that's going on there. And then secondly, I want us to consider what Christ has to say. And and the second point is going to be brief, but it's going to be a key hinge that's going to give us the transition from Ezekiel's vision of this blueprint of the perfect temple uh, to ultimately Emmanuel, God with us, which is the third point and which will lead us to contemplating about the birth of the the Savior, the, the birth of Christ, the Son of God. So let's give thought first to what Ezekiel has to say here in his vision. Ezekiel was a priest, as he tells us in chapter 1, verse 3, and he was living in exile in Babylon because Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians, had conquered uh, the, uh, the people. He had captured Jerusalem in 597 BC, and he carried away the king. He carried away the royal family, the leading citizens, as well as the craftsmen. And so here is Ezekiel, a priest, a Levite, somebody who would want to be in and around the temple confines, but now he finds himself stripped away from the promised land, 700 miles away from the place where he would want to be, ministering in the temple of God. Nevertheless, in the midst of his exile, God called this priest to serve as a prophet, And he indeed gave his prophetic message of judgment, the first 24 chapters of his book being a message of judgment against Jerusalem. Uh, Chapters 25 through 32 were messages of judgment against the surrounding Gentile nations. But then chapters 33 through the end of the book, chapter 48, is ultimately a message of hope, promises of mercy, promises of grace. But what's fascinating here is that, very much like the prophet Isaiah, Ezekiel's book begins with an awe-inspiring vision of the holiness of God as Ezekiel saw the Lord's chariot. 
This is essentially what pulls up at the beginning of the book is the Lord's fiery chariot. We read in verses uh, 26 and 27 of the first chapter, and above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him. You know, if I remember as a kid watching the movie Chariots of Fire, and that particular movie title was inspired by the things that we uh, read of here in the book of Ezekiel. It's, it's Yahweh's fiery chariot that pulls up on the scene. And there's a sense in which we can say that Ezekiel is overwhelmed by what he recognizes. Because when he saw the fiery appearance of Yahweh as he pulls up on his chariot, he fell on his face because he knew he was in the presence of God. You know, think of Moses as God told Moses from the burning bush, take off your sandals for your feet stand upon holy ground. Think of Isaiah as he was there in the temple that day and he was overwhelmed by being in the presence of God so much so that he called curses upon his own head. Woe unto me for I am undone. I have unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And so here we read and see of this vision of this utterly holy and transcendent God and how contrary the transcendence of God was to the utter sinfulness of the people. Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants, Their descendants also are impudent, and stubborn. And so this is why God was arming the prophet with the message of judgment. You know, he appears in his fiery chariot. Ezekiel is overwhelmed with his holiness. And so God makes verbal what is readily apparent to the prophet is his, the, the utter unworthiness of the people and the utter transcendence and holiness of God. And so at the heart of the prophet's message, is the devastating news that not only would God let Jerusalem fall into the hands of the Gentiles, but that unthinkably he would allow these Gentile barbarians to destroy it, to destroy the temple, to destroy the holy city. Unlike the seraphim who brought the the burning coal to uh, Isaiah and touched the coal upon his lips to purify his lips, which in and of itself was an act of mercy, God was going to allow his angels to take the fiery coals from his his chariot and scatter them across the city. It would be a purification, just as it purified Isaiah's lips. But for Isaiah, it was a blessing. It was sanctification. It was purification. But for Israel and for Jerusalem and for the temple, it would be purification, but it would be purification through judgment, not mercy. But I think the ultimate and most demoralizing news to the faithful, not only on top of this judgment, 
is that God himself and his presence would depart from Israel. He would depart from Jerusalem. His presence would depart from the temple. We read in Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 18 and 19, Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. You know, I think for me, at least, one of the most iconic pictures or scenes from a movie uh, comes from the third installation of the Indiana Jones series, where the movie concludes with the, the, the main characters in Indiana Jones riding off into the sunset. And you see the sun setting, and they are just riding off into the sun, and it's, it's, it's really iconic. And in fact, when you, you find out more about it, that they, they, they literally hunted the world over looking for the perfect place where they could film this scene. And it was some place in the plains of Texas where they realized this is where we can film this scene. It's beautiful. It's iconic. This is not what happens here with the Lord riding off. The Lord does not ride off in his chariot off into the sunset. What he does instead is there's a sense in which he rides off and takes the sun with him, leaving only the darkness and the absence of his presence. Far from being beautiful, it's devastating. Far from being iconic, it's terrifying. Because only the darkness and the cold and the absence of the light of his presence and of his mercy and of his grace is left behind as he rides off, as he rides off. But as I said at the outset, as I said at the outset, given the overall structure, is this is unquestionably devastating news for the prophet, devastating news for the nation that God was leaving and taking his glory with him. Ezekiel's message doesn't end on a, on a note of despair, but rather on beautiful notes of hope. And that his book ends with what at first seems like a really curious set of visions, where the Lord takes the prophet and he perches him up on top of this high mountain from where he can spy out Jerusalem, and he gives him visions of a final and new temple. Because obviously the Babylonians were going to come in and utterly destroy the city of Jerusalem. They were going to destroy the temple. You know, just the other day my son asked me, large in part because of the scenes that you see in, in Indiana Jones where you see the Ark of the Covenant boxed up and, and put in some storage facility in a government storage warehouse. My son said, Dad, what, what do you think happened to the Ark of the Covenant? Do you think it still exists? And I said, no, I think it was destroyed. It was destroyed when the Babylonians came in. Why? It was no longer holy. Why? Because God left it. His presence left it. What made it holy was not the ark itself, but the very presence of God. And so now, instead of absence, and instead of darkness, and instead of profane presence of barbarians ransacking the temple, Ezekiel sees this vision of this perfect temple, this perfect dwelling place. Now, as you read on from chapter 40, verse 1, you might quickly become bored. 
You know, we've been, you know, my family and I have been finishing up our Bible reading for the year, and we've been reading through the prophecy of Ezekiel. And I think the kids, you know, that the eyes glaze over a little bit because you see just repetition after repetition after repetition of so many cubits by so many cubits, and it repeats it for the east, it repeats it for the west, the north, and the south, and it just goes on and on in these details. Why do we get all of this great architectural detail? Well, remember the source of the Mosaic tabernacle and the Solomonic temple. God showed Moses the divine plans when he was there atop Mount Sinai. When we read in Exodus 25 verse 40, And see that you make them, that is all of the things that I'm showing you, after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. In other words, I'm showing you the plans. I'm showing you the plans. I want you to make this tabernacle to the the absolute precise conformity to the plans that I'm giving you. That may not seem like all that much, but if you've ever built something, or if you've ever built a piece of furniture or something like that, if you're off on the plans by just a little, it can really mess things up. You know, I, I, I missed a half an inch on either side when I was building a bookcase once. And then I realized, now I know why uh, the bookshelves keep on falling out. There wasn't enough, there wasn't enough uh, wood on either side just because of, of a half an inch on either side. So I had to make some adjustments and, and fix it. And now the shelves stay on the bookshelf. If you're off by just the slightest measurement, things can go haywire in a building in a piece of furniture or whatever it is that you might be constructing from plans. God likewise instructed David with the construction of the Solomonic Temple. In 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 19, all this he made clear to me in the writing from the hand of the Lord, all the work to be done according to the plan. What God does here when he gives Ezekiel the plans for this perfect temple. It's a temple that conforms perfectly and exactly and precisely to the plan of God, which is set in contrast to the temple that existed in Ezekiel's day, the temple where there were abominations, the temple where there was idolatry, the temple where the people came to church, so to speak, but they were just there in body, They were not there worshiping in spirit and in truth. They were going through the motions, but it was all false worship. It was an abomination unto God because ultimately their worship did not conform to the will of God. And so what Ezekiel is doing is going through in painstaking detail by saying that this final temple... This final dwelling place where God will dwell in the midst of his people will conform perfectly to his will, to his plan, to his desires. But we shouldn't think that these architectural plans are ultimately for a final, literal, physical brick-and-mortar building that Ezekiel is seeing at some point in the future. You know, there are a lot of Christians, 
a lot of Orthodox Jews who are looking with eager anticipation to the land of Israel and to the hopes that one day, sometime in the future, the, the nation of Israel will rebuild the temple and some even believe that the sacrifices will recommence. But I think one of the facts that shows us that this is not at all the intent of Ezekiel's prophecy nor the goal of his visions is that for a lot of the details in the plan, you only get horizontal dimensions. You don't get vertical dimensions. So in that sense, if it was a physical building, they're incomplete plans. They're incomplete Rather, what I want to say is that the point of this perfect temple, as well as all of the perfect sacrifices down to the most minute detail, is twofold. There's a coming day when the abominations that once filled the temple of God in Israel would be no more, and all of Israel would worship him in spirit and in truth and perfect conformity with his will. And then secondly... The book ends on one of the most hope-filled words, I think we can say, as he describes the final perfect new Jerusalem, this final city, down to its most, uh, the smallest detail, with the temple in its midst, as Israel encamps around the four-square city. In Ezekiel chapter 48, verse 35, and the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. This is the point of the perfect temple. The Lord is there in the midst of the city. It's perfect. And not only is it perfect, but the city is perfect. And not only is the city perfect, but all of the tribes of Israel dwell perfectly all around the presence of the Lord in this last and final temple. This brings us to our second point, which, as I said at the outset, is going to be a hinge. It's going to help us transition from Ezekiel to the birth of Christ. As I said, many Orthodox Jews and Christians look to a day when... Israel will rebuild the temple. They look to that patch of dirt in the Mediterranean world that we call Israel, and their eyes are peeled for signs that this final temple that Ezekiel saw is being rebuilt. But I think that there are many important details, especially that Christians miss here in the scriptures in Christ's teaching. Early in his ministry, we see in the Gospel of John that Jesus went into the temple and uh, he drove off the money changers. He went into the temple, he fashioned a, a cord in order to make whip, and he whipped them out of the temple. He turned over the tables. And what did he say as he conducted as this cleansing of the temple? John 2.16, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Think back to Ezekiel's blueprint for the perfect temple. There is no place in those plans for the money changers table. They turned it into a house of commerce rather than a house of worship, rather than a house of prayer, which tells us that the Herodian temple, the temple that was built in the days of King Herod, was not the temple that Ezekiel was looking for. And of course, we know this is the case because later on in 70 AD, uh, that temple was destroyed. And the only thing that remains of the Herodian temple now is the Wailing Wall that we see there in Israel today. 
And so much like the temple in Ezekiel's day, the Herodian temple had become a house of abominations. Now, what Jesus' actions merited from the religious leaders was scorn and criticism, but key in Jesus' response is what gives us the hinge to the birth of Christ that enables us to transition from Ezekiel's prophecy of the perfect temple to the birth of Christ. Jesus says in John chapter 2, verse 18, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? What gives you the authority to drive off the money changers? By what right can you do these things? What sign are you going to show us that demonstrates you have the right and the authority? Jesus answered to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, thinking that Jesus was talking about the Herodian temple, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? And then John gives us this parenthetical comment so that we too aren't misled. But he, Jesus, was speaking of the temple of his body. The temple of his body. This is neither a coincidence nor a slip of the tongue, but rather this is a very deliberate statement on Jesus' part. Jesus judged the Herodian temple by driving off the money changers, which meant that the temple and the people were in contradiction to the will of God. They were not in conformity. If you were to draw their temple, it would look maybe like an M.C. Escher sketch or a Salvador Dali painting. It wouldn't make sense because it wouldn't conform to the will of God. But if you read through Ezekiel's blueprints of the temple, there's no place or room for money changers. But Jesus tells us that ultimately he is the temple. In other words... Ezekiel's prophecy of the perfect temple doesn't point to a building. It points to Jesus. It points to Jesus. In short, what Ezekiel saw was nothing less than a shadowy image of the incarnation of Christ. Think of it when the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 2.9, For in him, for in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells. Jesus is the final temple. Jesus is the final temple, which brings us to our third and final point, which is Emmanuel. Jesus is the final temple, the the ultimate dwelling place of God in the midst of his people, which John so powerfully captures in the opening chapter of his gospel. In John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and then verse 14, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And note this language, which the English translations unfortunately miss. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. When it says, when John says that God tabernacled among us, this is the fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision. Because unlike the temple in in Solomon's day, that is in Ezekiel's day, or the Herodian temple, it was always out of conformity 
with the will of God. It was imperfect. It was sinful. It was full of abominations and idolatry. Not so with the incarnation of Jesus, the final temple, the final dwelling place of God in the midst of his people. Jesus Christ, who is fully obedient to every single jot and tittle of the law, he is the perfect temple down to the smallest detail. When Ezekiel saw the final temple under the guise of a perfect building with perfect sacrifices and in perfect conformity to the will of God, it's because he was seeing a shadowy picture of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Moreover, what does John tell us in the gospel? That if you want to see the Father, you can behold him in Jesus. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. But not only is Jesus a perfect revelation of God's will, the exact imprint of his nature, he also came, as I said, to obey every single command that his father gave him. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not to do the will of my own, or not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He did everything that his father sent him to do everything, down to the smallest detail. And not only, therefore, is uh, Jesus the very presence of God in the midst of his people, the final temple, but he's also the perfect and final sacrifice. What does Paul say in Philippians 2.8? And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Ezekiel, therefore, was neither prophesying Uh, nor looking for a building, but rather looking to the incarnation of the Son of God. And when God began to unfold the fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy of the perfect temple, when the angel came to Joseph to explain to him what was going on, what does he tell him in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and following? Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Remember Ezekiel's words and the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. Emmanuel, God with us. But not only does the angel say that this infant will be Emmanuel, God with us, but he tells he tells uh, Joseph that his name is going to be Jesus. Moreover, the angel came and told Mary in Luke chapter 1 verse 30 the same thing. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. What does that name mean? In the Old Testament, we have to remember that names mean things. Nowadays, oftentimes we we choose names because of the way we like how they sound or because a a former family member had them. But in in the Old Testament, it's it's all about the the nature of the person and who they are. And in this case, Jesus is the Jewish name Yehoshua or Yahweh saves. So the fact that this infant 
is Emmanuel, God with us. Yehoshua, God saves. This was the means by which he was going to save his people. The means by which he would dwell in their midst. So that when Mary held the infant Savior into her, in her arms and looked into his face, she beheld the face of God in the flesh. She held Ezekiel's prophecy in her hands. The Lord is there. And as Ezekiel prophesied, God's presence in the midst of his people and the perfection of the temple would be the means by which he would save them from their sins. That's why Ezekiel ends on a message of hope. And it was the established means by which his people, the people of God, would dwell eternally in his presence. One of the closing images that we see in Ezekiel's prophecy is that all 12 tribes uh, encamp four square around the final temple, which is the same image that we see in the book of Revelation with the vision of 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe uh, gathered around the throne of God. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and following after this. I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Such is the vision that Ezekiel saw, such is the vision that John saw, and it all began its fulfillment with the birth of Jesus Christ. So when you think about Christmas and the birth of Christ, trace the roots of the infant Savior back to the Old Testament. In this case, back to Ezekiel's perfect temple. This year, I think, has certainly been a challenging one for all of us in different ways. But remember, in the face of these challenges, what the birth of Christ means. God is, the Lord is there dwelling in our midst. He's Emmanuel through the incarnation of Christ. He has neither forgotten us nor forsaken us. Through the Son, he is Emmanuel, the God who saves, who redeems, who cleanses and purifies us from all of our sins. Through the Son, he is Emmanuel, the God who comforts, who cares and consoles us in our troubles and in our trials. And what does Jesus tell us in Matthew chapter 18, verse 20? For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Ezekiel's the Lord is there. So we should therefore draw nigh unto Christ. As in Israel's vision, we should encamp around the presence of God. And in so doing, as we worship and draw near to him, our prayer should be that we would reflect the glory, the holiness, and the righteousness of Christ as he dwells in our midst. Beloved in Christ, give thanks that Ezekiel's final temple has come, and it has come through the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, so often we can forget your promises that you have made throughout the ages past. We sometimes only read the prophets and see the message of judgment, doom, doom, 
and destruction. And we forget first and foremost that it was warranted and just, but that we fail to see the messages and the promises of hope, of restoration, and of the outpouring of your mercy and grace. O Lord, we give thanks for Jesus Christ, the final temple. And uh, though Ezekiel saw Christ in terms of this perfect temple and in terms of uh, this perfect city and perfect sacrifices, we rejoice nevertheless at your faithfulness, that what Ezekiel only saw in shadows and in, uh, in, in visions, we have been privileged to be able to behold with the clarity of faith in your written word, Moreover, we have the, the, the privilege of having the indwelling presence of your very Holy Spirit because of the work of Christ, all because you have kept your promises and have been faithful and true to them. And just as we celebrate the birth of Christ and remember the fulfillment of these promises, we pray, O Lord, that you would help us to remember that you are fulfilling those promises still yet and that we can eagerly look forward and look to the horizon And cry out, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Just as you have fulfilled your promises in the past, you will continue to fulfill them for our future. We pray, O Lord, in the meantime, that you would bless us, O Lord. This past year has been a trying one for many, whether because of unemployment or lack of jobs or because of illness or because of the virus or because of economic hardships or inflation political unrest and turmoil, uh, or perhaps even family strife. We pray, O Lord, in the midst of this chaos, you would impart unto us through Christ, our Savior, a sense of peace and a sense of your presence. And that though all hell may breaking loose around us, O Lord, you would grant unto us that peace that surpasses all understanding, that we would know that you are faithful, that you are merciful, that you are in our midst, and that you will reveal yourself not only through your word, but on the last and final day through the uh, return of Christ as you raise us from the dead and and enable us to encamp four square around the throne presence of Jesus Christ. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray and ask all of these things in his precious and holy name. Amen.